Grab your Bible and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2, we're going to be looking again this morning at Lamentations chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. We began studying this passage a little bit last week, and in this passage we saw the prophet warning the people of Jerusalem to receive punishment from the Lord and repent of their sins. The Lord is warning the people that God's judgment, God's wrath has come upon them, and that for their part, they needed to receive that just punishment from the Lord with an attitude of repentance. Rather than bitterness, rather than self-will, rather than doubling down on their sin, they needed to receive this discipline from the Lord and turn back to Him. If they wanted to receive the mercy and grace of God, they had to turn away from their own rebellious sin and turn back to God. So really what we have in this passage is a call to repentance. And today, as we continue to dig deep into this call for repentance, we'll see not only is this passage a call for the people to repent, but it's also a description of what repentance looks like even in our own life. So look with me at these verses. Lamentations chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. So these verses call Jerusalem to repent and they provide a description of what that repentance needed to look like. We began to see this last week. And as we were studying it through last week, we saw that biblical repentance, if we were to define it, might be go something like this. Repentance is a change to your life stemming from a change in your thinking. It's, it's a turn. There is a turning. There is a, a change in the direction and the course of your life. And that turn, that change in the course of the direction of your life, it, it comes from a change in your thinking. A change in your priorities, a change in your faith. That's the nature of what true repentance is. And in the Bible, it's made clear that in order to be saved by Christ, we must believe in Him and we must repent. We must change the direction of our life. We must change the way we think about life. We must turn away from our reliance upon ourselves. We must turn away from our reliance on our own thinking, our own wisdom, and we must turn to Christ. That's the nature of this repentance that leads unto salvation, and it's the nature of the kind of repentance that needs to characterize the Christian life. 
as the Lord reveals to us through His Word the areas in our life that are not consistent with His truth, we must turn away from that and turn unto His truth, His way of living. And when we don't do this, it has dire consequences in our lives. If you're here today and you have not put your faith in Christ Jesus, if you're here today and you're unwilling to repent of your own self-determination, of your own self-will, of your own self-reliance, if you're unwilling uh, un, uh, to humble yourself and repent unto Christ, then the Scriptures are clear that the result of that will be your eternal damnation in hell, eternal punishment. And for those of you who have repented and turned unto Christ Jesus, you've escaped eternal wrath, but the Scriptures continue to warn us that if we will not repent in specific areas of our life, there will continue to be dire consequences, even as a believer. If you have areas in your life where you are unwilling to repent of specific sins, it will hinder your relationship with the Lord. You may be right with the Lord through Christ Jesus, but your walk with the Lord will be hindered through unrepentant sin. Additionally, a lack of repentance will just shatter the relationships in your life. If you're not willing to own sin and repent of it in your relationships with other people, then you will systematically see every relationship that you have crumble before you. The pride that prevents repentance also prevents us from fellowship with one another. Additionally, you, you can't harbor areas of unrepentance in your life and expect to see Christian fruit in your life. If you're not willing to submit your life to the Spirit through repentance, then you cannot expect to see the full blossom of the Spirit's fruit in your life. You say, boy, I, just, I wish I had more joy in the Christian life. <laughs> well... Joy comes as a fruit of the Spirit when we're living a life submitted to the Spirit. And if there are areas of your life where you refuse to repent of sin, then the Lord is not going to bless you with fruit. We talked about this last week. This is actually a kindness from the Lord. Can you imagine how bad off we would be spiritually if the Lord chose to bless sin? Sometimes... Sometimes this withholding of fruit, sometimes these dire consequences are the only thing that, that keep us from sinning. And so the Lord has designed it this way as a protection to us. But if we ignore this protection and refuse to repent in specific areas, then you'll see diminishing fruit in your life. In fact, I mentioned this to you last week and I'll mention it to you again. Pastorally, I think one of the greatest hindrances in the Christian life is deficient repentance. Or maybe to put it another way, it's a failure to repent. Even we as believers, we've become accustomed to excusing sin or living with it. Well, that's just who I am. This is just what I do. I've always struggled with it. I guess I'll struggle with it until Jesus comes back. I'm not going to worry about it. Deficient repentance is no repentance at all. And it's a roadblock to growth in the Christian life. And really, the, the, the root cause underlying our deficient repentance, our failure to properly deal with and abandon sin, it, it's really actually pretty simple. We just don't want to give the sin up. 
We don't want to abandon it. We cherish the sin. We love the sin. And we know that if we truly dealt with it before the Lord, that we would have to cut it off completely. There'd be no provision left for the flesh. We have to cut it off. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we don't want to do that. You say, why don't I repent? Well, a lot of times you don't repent because you don't want to repent. You don't want all the negative things that come from a lack of repentance. You don't want your walk with the Lord to be hindered. You don't want your relationships to be shattered. You don't want to lose out on the fruit of the Christian life. You don't want those things, but you also don't want to give up your sin. It's the classic, you want your cake and you want to eat it too scenario, isn't it? But life, particularly the Christian life, doesn't work that way. Now, for some of you, for some of us, I should say, one significant roadblock to repentance, it may be rooted in the fact that we don't really want to give up those sins, but also it may come from the fact that we don't really know what repentance looks like in practice. I mean, pastorally, I've seen this often. Have you repented of this sin? You know, I don't know. What is that? I mean, I, like I said, I was sorry and I feel bad about it. Is that repentance? What does repentance look like? And that's where this passage is so helpful. This passage gives us a glimpse at what repentance should look like practically in our own lives because the same kind of repentance that was required from Jerusalem in this text is necessary for us as well. And so as we dig into this passage, what arises from the text is four characteristics of genuine repentance. And we saw the, last, uh, the first one last week. True repentance is informed. Which is to say, true biblical repentance is always a response to biblical truth. See, in repentance, the truth of God's Word is what changes our mind to change our lives. Remember, when we define repentance, it, it is a change in your life that stems from a change in your thinking. True biblical repentance is always informed with biblical truth. It's a change that starts with your thinking as the truth of God's Word addresses the areas in which you're not thinking God's thoughts after Him, that's what spurns and stems uh, uh, forward your repentance. We might say it this way, true repentance is always regulated and measured by the truth. And that one's an important one and a very practical one. Your repentance is not measured by how you feel. I was really sorry for it, Pastor. Man, I sinned and I felt so bad. I, that's your conscience. You should feel bad if you sin. <laughs> that's good. Thank the Lord that you still feel bad over sin. The moment you can sin and not feel bad about it is a dangerous place to be in. So thank the Lord that you feel bad for it. But feeling bad for it is not repentance. Your repentance is not measured by the level of your sorrow that you feel. Sorrow is an important part of repentance, but it's only the beginning. Your repentance is, is measured by the truth of God's word. Okay, you felt bad about it. Then what'd you do? Did you go examine your life and say, this is where I deviated from God's truth and this is where I need to submit my life to God's truth? You say, pastor, have I repented? I'm gonna say, well, what does the word of God say? Have you turned into submission to God according to his word? That's how we determine repentance. You cannot abandon the sin in your heart and pursue the Lord without the objective standard of God's Word. The Bible defines what we must repent from, 
It defines what we must repent unto, and it defines how we go about repentance. If sin, in large part, is self-will, sin is me saying, I'm not going to do things God's way, I'm going to do things my way, then we cannot repent of sins our own way, can we? We've got to submit our repentance to the truth of God. And by the way, in verse 17, as we saw last week, that's what the prophet does. The prophet doesn't say, good, you, you felt bad about it, now let's move on. Now, the prophet brings some pretty heavy truths to bear in this situation. Truths about God's sovereignty. The Lord has done what He had purposed. He carried out His word. His, his righteousness, which He commanded long ago. He's thrown down without pity. He did exactly what He said He was going to do. And even His holiness. He's made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Because He's holy, He separated Himself from you, Israel. I mean, these are heavy truths. The sovereignty, the righteousness, the holiness of God. And, and the reason why the prophet brought these truths to bear in the situation is because when we understand, accept, and trust in the truth of God, then, then all the hindrances and excuses to avoid repentance, it all starts to just kind of evaporate away. I mean, one common excuse for not repenting is it's just not fair. <laughs> Life's not fair. Life's not fair. Well... When you understand God's sovereignty, His righteousness, and His holiness, there is no sinner who could ever say, God's not fair to me, right? That's what the prophet's doing. You see, a surrender to the truth of God when it contradicts the lust of our hearts, that's the starting place of true repentance. Everybody wants to skip to step 500 before they've made it to step 2. Okay, Step 500 is when you don't even have the temptation of the lust in your heart. Wouldn't we like to be there? We will be. We'll be with Jesus and we'll be there. Okay, that's step 500. Step two, step one is you feel bad about it. Step two is you stop doing it. That's when repentance begins. When you surrender to the truth of God despite your temptation. You come and say, Pastor, I'm just, I'm still tempted to this sin. Yeah, I bet. Did you do it? No, I didn't, but I'm still tempted. What's going on? Well, let's just take a minute and praise the Lord that you didn't fall into that sin again and you resisted the temptation. That's repentance. Yeah, but I'm still tempted to do it. Right, that's kind of what this life is going to be about for a while. And, and, and you've lived your life in such a way where this is a pattern sin in your life. So yeah, that temptation is going to be around for a while, but you didn't submit to it. You surrendered your life to the truth. That's repentance. Let's praise the Lord for that. That's what repentance looks like. It surrenders to the truth of God, even when that truth contradicts the way you feel, even when that truth contradicts the lust of your heart. See, the truth is always what compels true repentance. True repentance is informed by God's Word. Secondly, in verse 18, we find a second characteristic of true repentance. And here in this verse, we learn that true repentance is thorough. True repentance is thorough. You see, I think the most common deficiency in repentance is superficiality, just surface level. Man, I sinned, I feel bad, I'm sorry, won't do it again, Lord, and then boom, move on with life. So often people pull up short before they've actually repented of this sin. That's just not going to work. 
our sin and our sinful inclinations penetrate to the deepest level of our hearts, which is why our repentance must honestly deal with the heart. You, you cannot stay on the surface level if you want to thoroughly repent. You say, what does that mean? Well, part of thoroughly repenting, repenting means you need to seek clarity on your sin. You need, to, you need to seek clarity. In that moment when you sinned, you need to, through prayer and through looking at the Scriptures, through seeking wise counsel, you need to seek some clarity on why it is that you sinned in that way. It's easy to say, boy, that was a sin. I shouldn't do that again. Well, why did you sin? What was it that was tempting you? What was it that led to that? You need to seek clarity on those things if you want to deal with the issue thoroughly. Additionally, thorough repentance not only requires clarity on what the real problem is, but it also requires that you pursue clarity on the solution. Okay, I know what went wrong here because I've really thought this through and investigated with God's truth. I've prayed about it. I sought godly counsel. But now, now that I know what went wrong, I need to replace that with how it should have gone. What, what were the promises of God that I wasn't trusting in in that moment? What were the commands of God that I disregarded in that moment? It's that kind of depth of thinking, that kind of depth of clarity that's going to result in a thorough repentance. And this is important because superficial repentance that deals only with the externals and the visible consequences, it won't prevent us from sinning again. So often what we call repentance is us just trying to kind of mitigate against the consequences of our sin. Superficial and quick repentance will produce superficial and fleeting fruit. And again, this thoroughness of genuine repentance is usually where people stumble and fall. Upon seeing sins, many believers will show remorse for sinning. They'll confess it. They'll seek forgiveness before God. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I won't do it again. And all those things might be helpful. But that doesn't really complete the, the, the process of repentance, does it? might begin the process, but it doesn't complete the process. Thorough repentance requires that we determine the, the, the unbe- underlying unbelief that led to our sin. The lustful allegiances, the, the, the idolatrous thoughts that caused the sin. You see, you'll never, you'll never move past that sin if you don't thoroughly deal with it. I could go out, I could go out in my front yard and I could pick all the flowers off all the dandelions. And you know what that would do for my lawn? <laughs> Not a thing. Not a thing. Because why? They're all growing beneath the surface. That's where it's at. That's it. I can mow it really, really short. That's actually my, that's, that's my strategy for my lawn. <laughs> Don't kill the weeds. Just cut it all so short that it looks kind of green. <laughs> I've got coverage. I don't have, necessarily have grass. But if I let it grow out, guess what happens? Everybody knows that coverage is just a bunch of weeds and crabgrass and dandelions. And if I just chop the top off it, it doesn't change what's going on below the surface. Now, when you're examining your heart and you're trying to deal with it, you'll never identify every sinful motive or unbelief, sure. But until you get to the core of the issue, until you get to the core of the sin, repentance will be incomplete. 
And the fact of the matter is that few are willing to go this far because it's too hard and it's way more humbling than external repentance. When you start digging into your heart and you start seeing, whoa, that, that outward outburst of anger was just the tip of the iceberg of, of the sin that, that is going on in my heart. You know what? It's a lot easier to just say, you know, I'm sorry I blew up. I won't do it again. Than it is to actually dig into your heart and start to deal with the unmet lustful expectations that led to the anger. It's hard. It's humbling. But it's necessary. In fact, notice in verse 18 how the prophet requires that this kind of depth and thoroughness and repentance. He begins by saying, their heart cried to the Lord. Now we've got to stop for a minute and try to figure out who the there is. It says, their heart cried to the Lord. Well, the prophet is speaking to the people of Jerusalem. So we would presume if he was speaking to or about the people of Jerusalem here, he would have said, your hearts cried to the Lord. So he's not speaking about himself. He's not speaking about the people of Jerusalem. Who then is he talking about? Well, this passage, this section began in verses 11 and 12. And actually the closest, here, here's a little grammar for you. You thought you were out of school, kids, but you know, here's a little grammar for you. The closest antecedent that matches, that grammatically matches the word there here, it comes from verses 11 and 12 where the prophet talks about the infants, the children, the babies who were out in the streets starving to death. It says at the end of verse 11, because infants and babies faint in the city streets, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. So here this is, Describing the children who were suffering with the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. The children are literally dying in the streets because of the Lord's discipline. And now, essentially, the prophet is, is going back to these children, reminding the people of these children again, and saying, look, this, this continues to go on. Their heart cried to the Lord. And, and, and how do you respond to that? O wall of the daughter of Zion. Now he's talking to the people of Jerusalem. How should you respond? The answer is, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. I mean, essentially the prophet is saying, you need to repent so that the Lord will relent in this discipline. Your children are starving to death. Stop pursuing the sin that brought this upon us and repent. In a way, Jerusalem's saying, think about the children. And when he says, let tears stream down, he's talking about the kind of repentant sorrow that sin necessitates. And what's interesting is, by the way, this is exactly what the prophet had done when he saw these children. Beginning of verse 11, he said, My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The prophet saying, look, this was my response, this needs to be your response. And by the way, that, this response was commanded by the Lord as well. 
In Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 17, the same prophet, the Lord said to him, you shall say to them this word, let my eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease for the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound with a very grievous blow. In other words, the people needed to start the process of repentance. They needed to be sorrowful for their sins. And by the way, because their sins were great, their sorrow needed to be great as well. It says, let tears stream down like a torrent. Here, uh, The word torrent here, it's kind of a loose translation. Uh, the Hebrew word here is it's actually describing a uh, 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 like a dry riverbed or a channel that would be dry most of the year, but then during the rainy seasons when all the rain would come down from the higher elevation, it would flow with water. Usually in the winter months, these, these ravines, these canyons would just flow with dangerously fast flowing water. And the idea is you, you need to weep and be sorrowful like that. The magnitude of your sins necessitates this magnitude of sorrow. That's a reminder that we do need to express sorrow and repentance. Now, sometimes, sometimes sorrow doesn't lead us where we need it to go, though. Just being sorrowful doesn't mean you're repentant. Sometimes our self-pity actually disguises itself as sorrow. You say, how do I know the difference between kind of being sorry for myself and sorry for my sin? You understand there's a big difference, right? I can sin and then be stuck in the consequences of that sin and then feel sorry for myself. That's not repentant sorrow. Or I can sin and be stuck in the consequences, the temporal consequences of my sin and be sorry for that sin and be sorry for sinning against the Lord and that's repentant sorrow. But sometimes it's tough to tell the difference. Well, just real quick, a few ways that you can tell the difference. Sorrow is actually self-pity when it causes us to doubt Christ rather than magnify Christ. When you're in a situation and you're just like, how could Christ be good? How, how, how could this be God's plan for my life? That's probably a telltale sign that you're feeling sorry for yourself, not sorry for your sin. Additionally, sorrow is usually self-pity when it causes us to cherish sin rather than mortify it. Sometimes we're not sorry over sin. We're sorry about the thought of having to give that sin up. Man, I know God doesn't want me to do this and I want it so bad and it's so tough for me to let this go. That's not repentant sorrow. That's self-pity. Additionally, sorrow is self-pity when it causes us to avoid the truth rather than meditate on the truth. If you're struggling with sorrow and somebody brings the truth into your life and you're tempted to say, look, I've heard that before. I don't need that right now. <laughs> well, if you don't want the truth of God, that means it's not a repentant sorrow. It's a self-pitying sorrow. How about this one? Sorrow is actually self-pity when it causes us to seek relief rather than God's grace. We're going to talk more about this in a minute. But so often we get in the midst of sorrow for sin and the sin actually compounds itself, or we compound the sin, I should say, because we seek relief rather than grace. 
rather than forgiveness and help not to sin again, it just gets so tough that we say, you know what? I want to do it. I'm going to do it again and I'll feel better anyway. The kind of sorrow that leads to self-pity, that leads to sin, that's not what the prophet is talking about here. This is actually what we're, this kind of worldly sorrow is what we're warned of in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7, 10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, there are going to be a lot of sorrowful people on their way to hell. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Here's the bottom line here. A godly repentant sorrow leads to you dealing with sin. Not wallowing in self-pity. And by the way, this is exactly where the prophet is shepherding the people towards in Lamentations chapter 2. He doesn't just say, let the uh, tears stream down. He goes on, and this is interesting at the end of verse 18, to say, give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. They were to day and night deal with this issue. By the way, it's a good reminder that repentance, true repentance, takes more time and effort than a few minutes of confession, doesn't it? You sin. You pray, Lord, I I sinned, I'm sorry. Well, that's good. That's where it starts. But that's not where it ends, is it? Notice the prophet doesn't say, look, just, just go to the Lord and say you're sorry. And then be done with this whole thing. There's no day and night you need to be dealing through this, uh, dealing with this and working through this. He says, give yourself no rest, no respite. Don't let up or seek temporary relief until you have dealt with the sin that caused this. Don't stall out the work of repentance by provi- providing yourself with superficial relief to spiritual sorrow. You know, it's kind of like the, the little kid is always crying and, and everybody's temptation. Just give him something to eat. Just give him something to eat. Give him a, give him a, a, a tasty cake. Uh, he'll, start, he'll stop crying then. But if you want to teach a kid to make an idol out of food, then just do that all the time. Just do all this stuff a donut in his hand every time he's upset. Why? He's not, whatever, whatever's causing Whatever is causing him or her to cry, whatever the actual issue is, you're just kind of masking over it with sugar. Well, that's easy to see in a kid. But we do the same thing as adults all the time. We provide ourselves with temporary worldly relief instead of hanging in through the spiritual sorrow to actually deal with the underlying issue. Don't seek relief until you fully examine your heart before the Lord and His truth. You need to be thorough in your repentance. And here's why. Superficial repentance will lead you back into sin. Thorough repentance will lead you to grace. 
when you're thorough in your repentance, you'll examine your heart. You'll take responsibility for what you've done. You'll confess it to the Lord. You'll begin the process of turning away from that sin. And in that, the Lord provides His grace. If you're running towards God and away from sin, then the Lord is going to help you in that. However, superficial repentance often deals, uh, dwells only on circumstances. Not your offense against God, but the circumstances that you're in now. It'll blame shift. Well, I know I shouldn't have done this, but they did that. They said this. And if I hadn't said this, they would have done that. That sentence, if you read it, wouldn't make any sense. But you all know what I'm talking about. We blame shift. Then, guess what happens? Whenever you blame shift, whenever you throw the blame onto somebody else or something else, guess what happens? Instead of becoming humble, you become angry. Hey, that's right. This wasn't my fault the whole time. It was their fault. So guess what happens? You become angry. And with sinful anger always comes inner turmoil. The Lord doesn't bless our hearts with peace when we have that kind of sinful anger in our hearts. And so then guess where you find yourself? You have no stability. You're struggling for faith. You're weak in that moment. There's inner turmoil. There's no peace. And guess when the temptation is going to be the strongest? Right then. And guess what you're going to do? Instead of finding God's grace, you're going to seek gratification and you're going to fall right back into those same sinful patterns. Why? Because you're not thoroughly repenting of that sin. You're excusing the sin. You're blame shifting. You're becoming angry over your circumstances. You're trying to deal with inner turmoil through gratification rather than seeking God's grace. Look, we come short of thorough repentance when we seek immediate relief through excuses, blame shifting, or gratification. Don't do that. When it comes to the sorrow of repentance, you need to seek comfort by dealing with that sin before the Lord and before His truth. You let those tears stream down until the Lord provides His peace. Don't just distract yourself. Don't say a trite little prayer that you may not even mean and then run away from that situation and get distracted with work or get distracted with kids or turn on the TV or whatever. You deal with what's going on in your heart and you allow the Lord by His Spirit through His truth to provide you with comfort. That's when the tears will stop. Through a thorough repentance. Our repentance needs to be thorough. It needs to be informed by truth. It needs to be thorough. Additionally, true repentance in verse 19 we see true repentance must be godly. Must be godly. And repentance must be godly in the sense that it must be Godward in its focus. You can't abandon your sin if you're trying to avoid God. You understand that, right? Repenting requires not only that we turn away from a particular sin, it also requires that we turn towards God. That's why, by the way, repentance, repentance begins with submission in the moment. You know you're repenting when you want to do something 
that God doesn't allow, and so you don't do it because God doesn't allow it. When you resist the temptation, that's how you know that you're repenting. True repentance turns towards God, recognizes sin is ultimately against God, and seeks to deal with that sin before God. It's not enough to just want to change your life for yourself. You know what? I'm really a lousy husband in this area of my life, and I don't like it, so I'm going to reform myself. That's not repentance. And, and, and notice the God word, godly repentance described in verse 19. The prophet says, arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Now, this is not just some random crying. I think I saw something on the news this week where people like went out in the park and screamed up in the air. I, I don't even know what to say about that. And I should probably refrain. That's not what this is. This isn't just random screaming into a pillow. What the prophet is calling for is for the people to cry out to the Lord. Wake up from your spiritual slumber and go before the Lord in prayer to deal with your sin. It says, at the beginning of the night watches. The, the idea here is each night watch, you're up. Every time the watchmen come out to change shifts, you're still up. You're not going to bed. You've gotten up and you're not going to bed. You're not avoiding this. You're dealing with it. It says, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. You deal with those things before the Lord. If you have a common temptation in your life, a common area of lust where you continue to fall into sin in that area of your life, you need to go before the Lord. You need to seek clarity from Him on it. You need to seek grace from Him on it. And you need to be willing in prayer to go before Him and say, Lord, I am willing to cut this out of my life completely. And I'll tell you what. If that sounds simplistic to you, then whatever that sin is, you go home today and you pray about it and you realize, wow, this is tough. Because when I honestly go before the Lord and recognize His authority and His sovereignty, when I go before Him, I don't want to make a rash vow and say, I'm going to cut this out if I'm not going to cut it out. What do you got to do? You got to deal with it before the Lord. You pour your heart out to God through a humble and honest prayer about the sin that you're dealing with. And it says, lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children. Again, that's what Jeremiah is pointing back to. Think of the children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. You lift your hands to the Lord. Even in repentance, don't hesitate to beseech grace from your heavenly Father. You are not going to deal with sin on your own. It wasn't possible in the gospel. Christ had to come to die as a sacrifice for sin and be raised from the dead for the justification, for the forgiveness of sins so that we could be saved. And in your own life as a believer, when you're battling sin, you're not going to be able to do it alone. Repenting is not running from the Lord. Repenting is running to the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, this verse reminds us of that, and, and it provides us with a helpful paradigm as we seek to go to the Lord on our own. So often we're caught up in a sin, and we don't want to pray about it. Now, a lot of times we say, boy, I just, I'm so sinful, I just, I don't think I deserve to go before the Lord. Let me tell you what, that may be what's going on in your heart, 
But I'm almost certain it's not what's going on in your heart. You tell other people, because of that little Pharisee inside of you, I've got it too, so I know it when I see it. That little Pharisee inside of you says, I just don't deserve to go before the Lord. In reality, what's going on is you know that if you honestly go before the Lord, you're going to have to confess the sin and give it up. So you don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. Or how about this? Maybe it's not prayer. Maybe it's coming to church. Well, I just, pastor, I've been in this sin, and so I just don't feel like I can come to church until I've dealt with this. Really? So you're going to ignore all the means of grace that the Lord has given to us, and that's how you're going to deal with sin? That sounds like a great strategy. Or not. Or not. No, no, no. You're not avoiding church because you don't think you deserve to be here. You're avoiding church because you know there are believers here who will call you out. And you know that the Spirit will use the preaching of the Word to bring you under conviction. And you don't want that. You just want to be able to sin. And it would be great if you could sin and have assurance of salvation at the same time. But look, life's tough. That's what's going on. The prophet is reminding us we need to run to the Lord, not run away from the Lord. And by the way, in all of this, can we just stop for a minute and remember how kind the Lord is? What is repentance? That God would bless it. What is repentance? That the Lord would invite it. All we're doing is saying, I was wrong, you were right, and I want to live according to your rightness, not my wrongness. That doesn't earn anything. That doesn't merit anything. And yet, the Lord has promised to bless it. See, repentance is nothing other than gospel grace. That's what repentance is. Mount Sinai, Old Covenant, there's no provision for repentance. And the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant, it's not only a provision for repentance, but we have the invitation to repent, and the promise that the Lord will respond to our repentance with His grace. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It's talking about those who have been forgiven of their sins. And it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. We can draw near to the Lord, even in the midst of our sin, because we're coming to the Lord on the basis of the accomplished work of Christ Jesus. Repentance is not, I have to earn my way back into God's good graces. That's penance. That's Catholic doctrine. Repentance is, I have to humble myself and turn back to God for His free grace. Our repentance must be godly. Now, there's one last point about true repentance that I want you to see. And it's not really directly from this text. It's really more by implication of this text. And it's this, true repentance is humble. 
True repentance is humble. There's a humble nature to repentance. Whenever somebody comes to me and says, well, look, I'm going to repent of this, and here's how it's going to go. I'm going to do this, you're going to respond this way, and here's how we're going to deal with it. I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) If you're the one who sinned, and you're the one who's repentant, why are you the one calling all the shots? Could it be that you're not repenting, you're just trying to control the situation? True repentance is humble. You say, well, where do you get this in the text? Well, like I said, this is more by implication. Think about it. The prophet had to call the people to repentance and they had to receive his shepherding. They had to receive his message. And this is so often how it works. Friends, very rarely do we lead ourselves to repentance. More often, we need the Lord to use the believers around us to help guide us there. We would prefer... Many times, especially at the height of temptation, we would prefer to avoid hard truths and avoid the need for repentance. And sadly, even when the Lord sent a messenger of repentance unto the people of Jerusalem, by and large, most of the people didn't listen to Jeremiah at all. Just, just listen to Jeremiah 41. It talks about how Uh, excuse me, 43, Jeremiah 43, talks about the people's response to Jeremiah's message. This is after the fall of Jerusalem. So I I think we can make a good case that Jeremiah 43 is recording a period of time that was actually after the book of Lamentations was written. So you might wonder, the prophet called the people to repentance. Did they repent? Jeremiah 43 says, when Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, All these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them. Azariah, the son of Hashaiah, that's one of those fun Old Testament names, isn't it? Johanan, the son of Kiriath, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, here's their response, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. Did they respond with humble faith? No, they did not. They hardened their hearts against the message of the Lord. We do not want to follow their example, do we? There's a humility of repentance that we must cultivate in our life. A a humility that is humble enough to receive a rebuke. Look, if the prophet Jeremiah came to you and said, look, this is where I see you sinning, You need to repent of this. You need to be humble enough to receive that rebuke. Don't become defensive out of personal embarrassment. Don't become defensive over the person who confronted you. Oh, well, you're no saint either. Okay, I am a saint. I mean, Jesus. Don't become defensive over how you were confronted. A lot of times when we're avoiding repentance, what we do is we kind of argue procedure. Well, I might have been wrong, but they shouldn't have come to me like this, and they should have said it this way. And da, 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 da. Well, look, they wouldn't have had to have come to you and compel you to repent if you hadn't sinned in the first place. Are, are imperfect people going to imperfectly come to you and confront you over sin? Yes, they are. But can God use imperfect messengers to do a work in you? He often does. Why? To humble us. To humble us. We need to be willing to receive a bu- rebuke. We need to be humble enough to let that happen. Think of King David. When the prophet Nathan came to him, 
Did he say, who are you? I'm the king. No. As soon as he saw the truth of it, his heart was melted and softened. And he repented. True repentance needs to be humble enough to receive a rebuke and humble enough to receive shepherding. Look, don't hide sin from those... Uh, don't hide from those uh, who would call you out on your sin. Don't, don't try to live your Christian life in such a way that no one can see into your life to, to ever rebuke you. Don't withhold the temptation. Don't withhold the sin from those who are trying to help you fight it. I love Thomas Watson. Our book of the month is Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. He said this in that book. If there is a thorn sticking in the conscience... It is good to make use of those who may help pluck it out. Have people in your life who can pluck the thorn out of your conscience if you need it. True repentance will be humble enough to deal with sin before God and when needed to deal with sin before others. That's what true repentance looks like. And it won't happen without a battle. It won't happen without a battle. It's going to be a battle. Repentance is the battle. The Lord didn't design it where you just say you're sorry once and move on and you never sin again. It's not going to happen if that's what you're expecting. You're going to have to come into that moment of temptation and say, I'm going to submit myself to the truth of God, not submit to my lustful desires. Repentance requires that you deal with sin by identifying the issue from God's truth, identifying what's going on in your heart, and identifying God's remedy through grace. True repentance is truth-driven. It is thorough. It is godly. It is humble. And when we'll commit ourselves to repenting in this way, it won't be perfect, but it will be fruitful. If unrepentance will rob us of fruit, then we can be assured that by God's grace, a life of repentance will produce fruit. In fact, the sweetest fruits of the Christian life are often cultivated through the difficult battles for repentance. Jeremiah was calling the people, you need to repent, here's what it looks like. And in the same way, we have a responsibility to live a life of repentance, and this is what it looks like. We pray with me? Lord, we thank You for Your guidance. We thank You for Your truth. Lord, we thank You for this instruction on what repentance looks like. And Lord, we recognize that we've got a long way to go. We've got a lot to work on. But we also recognize that we have Your grace in it. Lord, we are so thankful that our salvation does not depend upon the perfection of our repentance, but our salvation depends upon the perfection of Christ's work. And so even as we seek to grow in this spiritual discipline of repentance, even as we seek more and more to turn to You and away from our sin, We pray that you would continue to pour out your grace, the grace won for us by Christ. Pour it out in our lives and on our congregation. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.